the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is getting ready to, to go. And Miss Walker, who's the Macy employee in charge of the parade, realizes that the Santa Claus that they've got for the final float is inebriated. So they hire this guy off the street who just happens to look like what you would think Santa Claus really looks like. On top of that, he claims his name is Chris Kringle. And on top of that, he really believes he really is the Santa Claus. Well, he, he works for Macy's throughout the season. At that point, he's able to get to know Miss Parker and her daughter, Susan. And Chris thinks that the real miracle on 34th Street will be to convince these two uh, to get them to be at a place where they believe that he is the Santa Claus. Now, you, you notice Susan, she's wrestling with some of the evidences. She's, she doesn't not believe, this is important, she doesn't not believe because she's done an inquiry historically, because she's searched out all the facts. She doesn't not believe, uh, for those reasons, her, her Santa Claus atheism is, is based on uh, what other people have told her. Now, her mom, she doesn't believe because one of the reasons is she's been hurt in the past and uh, she is, has ruled out anything supernatural. She's kind of defined reality in such a way that, that anything supernatural just cannot exist and so she doesn't even deal with it. Now, the gentleman you saw, he's actually a lawyer, and, and in the movie, he is going to take Chris Kringle and defend him before a court in New York State and prove to the world that this Chris Kringle really is the real Santa Claus. Now, but then at the end, it's an interesting twist, the lawyer realizes that maybe he really didn't believe yeah, it's this time of year, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people throw Santa Claus and Jesus pretty much in the same category. You know, and, and people have different views on, 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 on Jesus historically and, and who he exactly was. They, they, they didn't exist. And it's not because they've done a, a honest inquiry into all the historical research. You know, most folk who are... It doesn't exist. All they're doing is parroting back what someone told them. When basically all they did is what taking what someone told them and on and on and on. Some folk don't believe in Jesus, God, because they have a hurt in their life. And obviously if God is real and Jesus is real, then they wouldn't have this hurt. Or they've defined reality such that anything supernatural could not possibly exist. They're naturalists or rationalists. Or maybe they're even like the lawyer guy where... They like Jesus. He's a nice Jesus. He's always okay. They just don't have the same view of him that he has of him. So what we want to do this morning, we want to look at a text out of the Christmas story that is it's the most controversial text in the Bible, but is also, I believe, a defining text. What you do with this with this text will determine the rest of your, your Christianity, basically. And let me throw a question at you as we look at this. And here's the question. Why do you think the birth narratives are there in Scripture? You know, they tell us about his birth, and then, other than one incident when he was 12, there's nothing else. There's silence until he's 30 years old. And then almost 98% of everything we know about Jesus is those two and a half years he was in public ministry. So why do we have the birth narratives? Is it because God thinks we need to celebrate, we need to have a special celebration time, and we need to, you know, the wonder of it all, and, and special music and cookies and family stuff? Those, those aren't bad things, but I don't think those are the reason why the text is there. The, the text is there for one purpose, 
And that is to help us know the identity of who Jesus is. And if you get that wrong, everything else is, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, when you think about Jesus, this guy that, that uh, lived in obscurity, really, all we have is two and a half years of his life. Um, when he died, he died a, a criminal's death. But yet, Jesus has touched life. He's changed life in this world more than anybody. Anyway, you know, children, for example. Uh, 4 BC, Roman world, it was not the year of the child. I'm, I'm telling you. The dads had eight days to name their child. And basically, it's because dads had eight days to determine whether they wanted to keep it. And whether they didn't like the gender, they didn't like the way the child looked. It was colicky. Uh, it was too small. It had some deformation. They were having a headache. Whatever the reason is, they could decide no. And they would take the baby out to the woods and leave it for the wild animals. Or they would take it to the beach and leave it for high tide. Or they would take it to the town square and leave it for the uh, slave traders or the, or the, the pimps. Uh, Jesus' followers remembered that Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And so they, they decided to follow these guys out to the woods and claim these babies and follow the people out to the beach and claim the unwanted children and follow the people to the, to the uh, city uh, squares where they dropped them off and claimed them. First orphanages were started. Children were, were not viewed the way they are today. Poor, helpless children were, were a, a nuisance at Jesus' followers radically changed the world with this idea. You, you, you have the, the t- taking care of the poor or, or the, uh, the hurting. There was an early church father who got upset by watching lepers die on the outskirts of town, alone in the elements. And he came up with this idea, let's collect some money and build a building that we can bring lepers into. Jesus touched the, the lepers and so his followers should take care of them as well. So let's do that and give them dignity and, and help them at the end of their life. Hospitals were, were, were born. Uh, the Council of, of Nice, uh, uh, fascinating. They gave us the Nicene Creed. They, they decreed that every time a cathedral was built, a hospice or medical clinic hospital had to be built right next to it. That's why we've got hospitals like Good Samaritan and Good Shepherd and, and Holy Redeemer and Mercy and Baptist and Presbyterian and, and we've got St. Agnes and St. Christopher and St. Luke and St. Vincent and St. Mary's hospitals because Jesus' followers changed the way the world dealt with people who were, were hurting and sick. Women. Uh, Jesus' day, women were not even second-class citizens. They were like less, barely chattel. Uh, Jesus calls them to follow him. And Jesus starts an incredible women's liberation movement, restoring them back to God's original purpose. This is why Paul could say that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. This was a radical statement. This is why Paul could say husband and wife are co-heirs in Jesus. And why we could talk to husbands and say, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This was radical thought. Uh, the idea of education. Jesus left his imprint on education. You know, the very first Mass Universal Education Act, Pencil, uh, Massachusetts, 1647. Uh, they had just come here, and it was called the Old Deluder Satan Act on the books. 
And their understanding was that that old deluder, deceiver, Satan, would want to keep people in deception and in ignorance. And so they decided, no, everyone has to be educated to understand about God's world, to understand about, uh, be able to read. And so they, they said this, in the very first school that was founded in the United States, uh, this is from their student uh, handbook. It says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ as the foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That was from Harvard University. They went on to form um, uh, Yale and William and Mary and Princeton and Brown, all with the same purpose. Matter of fact, uh, the first 138 colleges and universities in America... 92% of them were, were for that purpose, that people would come to know Christ. Jesus left his thumbprint on science, changed science. You know, the, the early pioneers of, of science, whether it's Sir Isaac Newton or Louis Pasteur or Priestley or Occam or um, Blaise Pascal, George Washington Carver, they were all believers, followers of Christ. And the reason why they were doing what they were doing is they knew that this was God's world and they could understand more about him by understanding his world. Uh, it was monks that developed mechanical clocks, the first clocks, and they did it so they would know exactly what time they were supposed to pray as well. Bible trans... You know, it's interesting. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this story about Jesus, translated in over 2,500 languages. Uh, according to John Ortberg, second book, most most most... Uh, translated book other than the New Testament is Don Quixote translated into 60 languages New Testament 2500 Don Quixote into 60 what is it about Jesus that makes him uh, so powerful where he can influence life so much you know H.G. Wells said this he said a historian like myself who doesn't even call himself a Christian finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 1. We want to look at the birth of Jesus and see what is it about Jesus? What is it about him that makes him so special? We're going to kind of breeze through this passage. I'm going to go back and look at just a couple of uh, observations. It's going to start in verse 26 of Luke 1. And as, as we do, let me just, just mention this, that hopefully you realize we're starting in verse 26. We're starting halfway through the story. There was 25 verses before 26. Whenever this kind of thing happens, you should say, wonder what happened in those first 25 verses. Well, let me tell you. Uh, Gabriel, the angel, comes, those first 25 verses, to an old man, priest in the temple. His name is Zacharias. And, and uh, the angel says to Zacharias, you know, the time is, is coming. The Messiah is getting ready to come. You and your wife are going to have a baby. And, and it's going to be John the Baptist. He's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And then... Gabriel comes in verse 26 again. By the way, let me, well, let me just read this. Uh, this is fascinating. Got a lot of stuff in my, my mind here. But in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, 
a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, if, if, you, if you're looking for some quiet time stuff to do, maybe you're, you're just kind of stale or you're interested in getting in the season, as it were, and, and you, you, you need something to uh, reinvigorate your time with the Lord, do this. Luke chapters 1 and 2. Between now and Christmas, just take a handful of verses each day and, and go through that. Just meditating, thinking about it. And if you contrast the first 25 verses of Luke to verses 26 through 38, you find some fascinating things. I mean, Luke was a master, liter- he was a literary genius. The angel comes in the first 25 verses to an old man. In the first 26 on, he comes to a little girl. And in the, in the first part, he comes to a priest who is one of the ruling class. This guy's in charge of, of the nation, very sophisticated, educated. In the second part, he comes to a peasant. In, in, the, in the first part, he comes to somebody who's in God headquarters, Jerusalem, you know. In the second part, he comes up to uh, a little town in Galilee of, of the Gentiles. No, no one even knows where Nazareth is. That's why you guys say Nazareth of Ephrathah. We, we just don't even know where, where it is. In, in the first part, he goes just inches, the, the priest, Zacharias, is just inches away from the Holy of Holies. There's a veil, and he's right next to the veil. Holiest place on earth. Here he goes again to a town that is pretty much run by Gentiles and pagans uh, to marry. He goes to Zacharias and Elizabeth, too old to have a baby. He goes to marry, too young. She, she can't have a baby because she doesn't have a guy. The, the contrasts are, it's, it's a complete mirror. So, so Gabriel comes to Mary. Uh, keeping in mind too, that we talked this about this a couple of weeks ago, that the way marriage worked is Joseph's parents, when they thought Joseph was ready to get a wife, they started looking around. And girls, as soon as they could start, as soon as they were ready to have a baby, uh, they were qualified. And so maybe Mr. and Mrs. Joseph sit down with Mr. and Mrs. Mary and they say, you know, you should check out Joseph. Big, strapping, healthy guy. I've never been sick a day in his life. Great work ethic. Godly man. Tell you what, the girl that gets him, oh, she's going to be lucky. And we saw Mary, and you know, we thought, well, she might work. We're not. And so Mr. and Mrs. Mary would chime in and say, well, you know, I mean, Mary's pretty special. I don't, I don't know. I don't, Mary, she's going to give somebody a lot of great kids. I'm just telling you, she's a hard worker. And if we were to lose her, we would suffer financially. And Mr. and Mrs. Joseph would say, well, I don't know if she's that great of a worker. But anyway, they would work out a price together. Then they would pass money, and they would sign the papers. And Mary and Joseph are now legally married, but they don't live together. Mary would get into a one-year intense training program with her mom as far as what it means to be a mom and what it means to, to, to uh, be a wife and, and all that. Uh, Joseph goes back home with his parents and learns how to be a dad and sets up his own home. Then after a year, they would come together. But this right here, they're pretty much uh, in that engaged, legally engaged type of, of time. In verse 28, it says, And the angel went to her and said, Greetings. You, basically, it says, Hello. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Kind of underline that one. And wondered what kind of greeting this might be. We think when we read the Bible that, you know, like angels are on every page and there's just angels. All people just used to seeing them. They're greeting at Walmart. But angels are everywhere. There hasn't been an angel in like 500 years. And so if an angel came to you, what would you do? I mean, you sit down and go, okay. Mary has put this through her mind, the grid, everything she had experienced, everything she knew, everything she heard about, and it was not computing. And so she's 
greatly disturbed. You know, am I sick? Have I bumped my head? What is going on? I don't know. That's what Mary is thinking. Not sure. But then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus and he'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now typically, y'all, y'all know as parents, typically the parents name the child, right? Uh, and you didn't hear... Name the child, you know, what sounds good with my last name, you know. Maybe Ring and Ryan, the same song. Okay, this one will work. You didn't say, well, I'm going to name him after his great-grandfather. No, you didn't do that kind of thing either. What you did, first of all, as a parent, when you named the child, that demonstrated that you had authority over the child. But you thought, this was a real serious thing for them, you thought of character qualities that you wanted the child to reflect. You, you thought of, of historical uh, situations that you wanted the, the child to, to uh, emulate as far as his courage or who he was. You thought of characteristics of God that you wanted this, this child to reflect. And you, you set, you basically, you were setting the child's destiny. That's what they thought as parents. That's what you were doing. But here, at this point, you see this? Gabriel comes to Mary and says, no, 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 you're not going to name him Mary. No, 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 no. Not this time. The other kids, but not here. See, see you have, don't have that authority over him. You, you can't dictate his, his destiny. That's already been taken care of. Now, you read that and you think, you know, there's a lot of people in this world, Christians too, who kind of want to name Jesus. You know, they want to be able to dictate what he can ask of them and what he can't. They want to set limitations on, on really who he is and what he isn't. They want to kind of almost have authority a little bit over Jesus. And when he says something, they, they, they'll, if it works for their advantage in their opinion, they'll take it. But if not, eh, they're going to they're discard it. And when Gabriel would say, come say to us what he said to Mary, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Jesus comes to you. You've got to take him who he is. That, that's who he is. You, 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 you don't alter his, his identity. And then in verse 34... How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary's got a question here. It's interesting when you compare Mary's question to Zechariah. He had the same sort of question. When the angel came to him and said, Zechariah, you and your wife are going to have a baby. Look what Zechariah said. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well long in years. You say it's the same type of objection that Mary had. Mary said, I'm not married. How does this work? And Zechariah is saying, we're too old. How does this work? Same sort of thing. But look at Mary kind of got a blessing. But look what happens to poor old Zechariah. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Uh, Zacharias gets a slap on the tongue. He gets some judgment. I mean, he gets yelled at by the angel. I don't know if you've been yelled at by an angel. He gets yelled at by the angel. And you'd say, wait a minute here. It seems like a great inequity here. You got, you got Mary, who gets a blessing out of this thing. She, and Zechariah is asking the same sort of question, but he gets yelled at and gets judgment. What's this all about? If you look at their words closer, 
and you look at the words of Gabriel closer and you look at the experience of your heart, you recognize that people can ask questions in two ways, can't they? You can ask questions after the manner of Zechariah. People do this all the time. They're really not asking a question. They really are not looking for truth. They figure they've got it. It's more of a challenge. The question is, is worded in such a way, a little bit, maybe a little bit pejorative or got a tone to it in order to make the person look like an idiot. Their, 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 their position is stupid and senseless and useless. Oh, please, right. You expect me to believe that? Come on, come on. That's the kind of, of tone that might be going on. You'll, you'll hear people say things like, um, oh, oh yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me, where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> come on, tell me about that. They're not interested in an answer. They think they know. They've hung the person. They caught the person. There is no answer in their mind. And what they're doing is they are elevating their discernment, their wisdom. They're thinking they are so on top. They, they have caught the person. Their ability to understand this goes beyond that of even God. When you ask a question in the tone of, of Zechariah, that's steeped in pride. But you can also ask a question Via Mary, right? You can, in the same manner as Mary, where you're saying, I, I'm not sure how this works. I'm clueless. Here. What is that? I, I trust you and all, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, when you, when you, th- by the way, let me, you hear a lot of people who say, you know, because I have questions, I obviously don't have strong faith. I'm not going to tell anyone my questions because that would be too embarrassing and stuff, but I've got some questions and so I... I just don't have strong faith. You need to know Mary had questions. Questions. God does not ask us to deny common sense. Last I checked, common sense was not a gift from Satan. It was a gift from God. And to deny it is wrong. It's wrong. But you can elevate your own personal common sense above God. Uh, to ask the questions with humility. To ask them to him. Saying, God, I don't have a clue. I don't understand. I don't know. But I trust you. That's all the, that's all the difference in the world. And so let me just challenge any Zacharias among us. We think we know. We think we understand. We've got an issue. We've got a question. And of course that proves that everything else is wrong. And therefore, maybe we should ask the question with a little humility to God. And say, you know what? I don't understand this, but... Uh, in all honesty, there's some other things I don't understand. And I don't understand this. But if you're God, I'm assuming that you probably understand a lot more than I do. Ask with humility. You know, Zechariah does not get an answer here. I think part of that is his unbelief. Because you know well, as well as that, you can ask, answer where Cain got his wife. That's probably not going to satisfy this person. By the way, do you think Mary, when the angel did answer her, you think she said... Oh, got it. He probably still had questions because we understand what the angel said. And this is, this is debated all the time in, in church. Really? 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 Questions? Uh, and the angel, uh, well, even Elizabeth, he says in verse 36, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary answers, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. A couple observations. 
applications. First is that faith is established. It begins with an understanding of the identity of, of Jesus. Faith is established by uh, the understanding of the, the, the deity of Jesus. If you think about this for a second, if you think on the biology of this, it really pushes you. I'm telling you, you know, if Mary was a virgin when she got pregnant with Jesus, who must the father be? Well, the father is, according to the angel, is God the, the father. And somehow Jesus has, if I can use this metaphor, if it's a metaphor, God DNA in him. And Jesus is God. And this is, is, is hugely significant because this is what separates Christianity from all other world religions. Uh, you know, Muhammad never claimed deity. He never claimed, never claimed to be God, nor did Confucius, nor did the Buddha, at least the way we understand deity. And, and you know, these other world religions like Jesus, I can't think of one, I'm sure there's probably some, I can't think of one that hates Jesus. You know, Jesus is in the Quran and he's, he's a hero in the Quran. He's a nice guy. They like him. But all world religions will, will, even though they might like Jesus, Hinduism loves Jesus, but when he says that he alone is God, oh, the fighting happens. Because they cannot accept that, and that makes lots of sense, because if they do accept it, that Jesus is God and they're not, then suddenly Jesus has the trump card. If, if I'm not God, I can be wrong, but if Jesus is God, he can't be wrong. And suddenly he is now Lord over them. And so the fighting in our culture happens. Jesus, God, oh, please. Problem is, that his, we can expect that, but that has even worked its way into the church. Several years ago, um, Rob Belly was the pastor at Mars Hill in uh, Grand Rapids. He wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. And in, in, in his Velvet Elvis, he... He says, he says this. He says, what if we learned that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus whose gods had virgin births. But what if as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at that time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant for the first time she had intercourse. Would that make any difference? And Bell says, you know, I, I, I believe in the virgin birth and all. I'm just telling you, it's not a big thing. Well, it is a big thing. It's a huge deal. I had a, a pastor friend of mine read the book, sat down in my office literally shaking, and his faith was shaken, and he said, is it true? I said, well, well what, what part of all that Bill said, what, what part are you questioning, is it true? He said, that thing where it says the word virgin really doesn't mean virgin, it can mean young woman, is that, is that true? Well, stick with me for a second, because this, this is important. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, we have that. It says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Right here in this text, you need to know this. The word virgin can mean young woman. It's not its primary meaning. It can mean young woman. Now, you don't want to say, Oh, see, that's, that's it. Like interpreting any word, you have to look at its context. 
And if it's a young woman, then the context makes no sense. Mary's response makes no sense. Next text. I think she's going to say that how can this be because I am a young woman, right? And then they say, "Ah, Mary, young women are the ones who get married. Uh, The ones who get pregnant. What are you talking about? Then the angel's response wouldn't make any sense uh, either. That way he answered it. Now we see this more clearly in, in Matthew's uh, version Matthew chapter 1 says this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about stay, again stay with me you, you'll, you'll need this his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph her husband was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace he had in mind to divorce her quietly but after he had considered this an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said Joseph son of David do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit next verse All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to his son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is quoting Isaiah. See the word virgin here, Matthew? It's a different word than the one used in in Luke. This term, always, it's a very technical term. It has no other meaning. It always refers to a young woman who has never been sexually active. Always means that, always. And so God's word spells out very clearly the the deity of of Jesus. And again, why this is so important is because all the rest of Christianity holds on this issue. If you would still say that's that's not true, then you got a lot of scripture to, to explain. Next text. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus. In John chapter 10, this is why Jesus could say this. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. We've got the same spiritual DNA. We are one. He's in trial in Matthew 26. And people have said, Jesus never says anywhere that he's God. Well, you know what? That's just bogus because he certainly does. Look what it says. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Well, then then the Sanhedrin took this and they ran to, to Pilate. And John, the Jews insisted, they're talking to Pilate, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed, get this, to be the son of God. The Sanhedrin, they might not have liked it, but they would have been okay with Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. They knew a Messiah was supposed to come. But claiming deity? See, that was blasphemy. And so for that reason, that's... Why Jesus had to die. Philippians chapter 2. We can go on and on. There's going to be a couple more. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of his servant and being made in human likeness. John 17, 5. I don't have it up there. Jesus is praying in John 17. And he says, Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was made. If you want to deny the deity of Jesus, the fact that he was God, you can't do it based on scripture. You gotta do it, you can't do it based on culture. You can't, you, you have to do it like Rob Bell did it, just by denying scripture. Because I, you know, if you're gonna claim this was mythologizing, well then what about the miracles of oh, Jesus? I mean, some of them, you should read some of these miracles? Probably a little more mythologizing. And uh, leading a sinless life, who really leads a sinless life? 
more mythologizing. How about the resurrection? Man, this is like mythologizing on steroids, right? That's, that's really mythologizing. Uh, and what's another word for mythologizing, isn't it? Lying? Do we really think the gospel writers were just spin doctors when every one of them ended up dying a very painful death because of the truth of what they, they wrote? They went to their death, painful death, because of their claiming that, no, this is true. The, the deity of Christ, so incredibly important. Faith starts with an understanding of who Jesus is. Now, stay with me. Because whatever you believe about creation evolution, or whatever you believe about uh, tongues, or church polity, or pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever you believe about eschatology, I'm a pre-mill, I'm a post-mill, I'm a mill, whatever you believe about communion or, or baptism, important issues, I believe the, the Bible addresses those, I have my convictions on those, but those are not damnable. It's real important that we understand. Those are not, you're not going to get to the gates one day and he's going to say, well, tell me your, your views of church polity. I'm not sure I'm going to let you in. It's not going to happen. I want to know whether what you really thought about communion. Was it transubstantial? Was it, was it, was it you know, just the, the uh, fellowship view? What was, your, what was your thought? He's not going down that road. But he will say, uh, who was Jesus? The, 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 your understanding of the identity of Christ is a, a damnable thing. Your faith un- starts, its foundation is it's established with an understanding of the deity of Jesus. But here's something we've got to keep in mind. Who else knows that Jesus was God? The demons know that Jesus was God. And that's why a second observation you get from the text is, is that faith, although it's established with an understanding of Christ's identity, it's lived out, it's fulfilled with an understanding of my identity. Mary speaks off and she says, what? I am the Lord's servant, is what Mary says. May it happen to me as, as you said. Now, when I was a little boy, uh, growing up as deprived and <laughs> depraved as uh, you could grow up in inner city Chicago, myself and all my depraved friends, late 60s, early 70s, the worst thing you could call somebody, and we had a pretty colorful language, but one of the worst names you could call somebody in my depraved, unpolitically correct state uh, was a little girl. Oh, a little girl. You know, this was like a sign of weakness and powerlessness and, and fear. But you, you look at Mary. I mean, you don't get that at all out of Mary. You know, Frederick Buchner, uh, he's writing poet, he's waxing a little eloquence, poetical eloquence when he writes about this. And he, he says this, he's, he's writing about this very episode when Gabriel meets Mary. She struck him as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he had been entrusted with a message to give her and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named and who he was to be and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. As he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung on the answer of a girl. Uh, Mary was not foolish. She knew that this was kind of a wild story. That if she goes down this road, she could lose Joseph. Uh, she, she knew that law, that she could be stoned, she could be killed. Uh, all future generations are going to call her blessed, but that certainly, that was future. That was not her generation. Her generation had names for Mary. Blessed was not one of them. She was going to lose her reputation from this point on. 
She'd be a marked woman. She knew what this was going to cost to an extent. If I'm Mary, I'm saying, you know, uh, Angel, Sarah down the block. You know, I think she's probably a little bit better for this one than I. But, but you see, Mary's response, obedience in the midst of questions and, and pain. I mean, if I'm Mary, I've got questions not just still about how this is going to happen. I've got questions about what Joseph is going to think and what my parents are going to think and how in the world am I going to survive this. And I've got a lot of questions about my future. And, and Mary's response is, is golden, isn't it? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Servanthood is not an issue of drudgery and pain and, oh, I guess I'll do this one. I don't. There's peace here. Does she have all of her questions answered? No. Is there still probably some confusion? Yes. Does she still have, probably have some question marks about what's going to happen tomorrow? Probably so. But I am the Lord's servant. She answers, may it be to me what you said. Let me, let me ask you this Christmas time. Maybe is, is this Christmas for you the same as it was for Mary? Um, some dark stuff, really. Some questions without any answers. Some, some things that are just confusing to you. I just don't understand. Maybe some pain about tomorrow and some wondering. The, 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 the belief is not in... Do I have the answers and do they make sense to me? Belief is, do I understand the character of God? When you understand the, the, the identity of Jesus, you understand the character of God, that's when you can say, I am the Lord's servant. If you really know him as God, what else can you say other than, I am the Lord's servant? So this Christmas time, you can say, how dark it is, you can say, I am the Lord's servant. And you know, Lord, I'm a pretty poor one at that. And you know my frame that I'm but dust and how clayish my feet are. But I trust you. And I'm going to walk through this thing the best I can. And I'm going to lean on you. And I'm going to do everything I can to obey you no matter what the cost. You know, he's honored with that. You can say, I'm the Lord's servant. But again, only if you understand the identity of, of Jesus. Would you, would you pray with me?